If you have a Bible, would you please turn to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to take a break uh, for the next few weeks from our our series in Genesis to look together at the, uh, the... the account in Luke's gospel of the birth of Jesus. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you're using one of these black paperback Bibles we provided, that's on page 730. In the gold Bibles, it's page 499. And we'll begin reading there in just a moment. Christmas, as an adult never seems to live up to what I remember it being as a child. I don't know if that's because in my memory, I've just compressed kind of every good Christmas moment into one sort of super Christmas that I just imagine happened every year. I don't know if that's because I'm doing it wrong now, but I just remember as a child, it seemed that December was this, this, this season of amazing anticipation. So in, in, in America, we'd wait till after American Thanksgiving. We wouldn't put up our tree in September, but we'd, at the end of November, early December, we'd get that tree up and we would listen to James Taylor sing Christmas carols and we'd pull our ornaments out and we'd, we hadn't thought about them for a, a year. We'd say, do you remember when we got this ornament? I mean, it just, it was a magical time. We had more lights than we really needed for our tree. So my parents let me decorate my room and I would keep those lights on all night. I have no idea how I slept. It was like... It's like a, a bar in there, like with neon, neon lights. Um, and then school would let out. Uh, the, the earth was cooler then, so we used to get snow around Christmas and go out and play in it. And then uh, it just seemed like everything was so magical that life happened in just slow motion. And then you grow up, and you realize that December is madness. It's madness. You've got clients who want you to get three months of work done before the holiday so they don't have to think about it when they're on break. You've got, you're a teacher. You've got multiple Christmas programs to put on with children who mentally are already on break. If you're a parent, you've got to go to all these Christmas programs and your year-end functions at work and a hundred other things. It's, there's nothing magic about December. It's just a mad sprint to the finish. And at some point on Boxing Day, you realize you missed it. It's over. It's all, it's all past. And you just pack everything up and wait till next year. We need to slow down. Not just to be present with our kids, though, for that, but to take the opportunity this season affords to put other things aside and give our full attention to the meaning of Christmas, to what its message is and what it calls us to. And that's what we're going to try to do over these next three weeks between now and Christmas. So, Would you please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for every word in it. Every word of it is true. Every word of it is your word. Thank you for this passage and the way it points us to your Son. And I pray that you would would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would reveal to us your Son, Jesus, and that you would enable us to joyfully give ourselves entirely to him in faith. And I pray it in his name. Amen. I want to ask three simple questions of this passage. Who is coming? Why is he coming? And how should we respond to his coming? Who, why, and how? First, who is coming? The king, and more than a king. Verse 1 tells us that that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth. Now, you could hardly imagine a less likely setting for what's about to happen than Nazareth. In the passage just before this, there was another angel visit. Gabriel had gone to visit to meet Zechariah, who was a priest. He was in the temple in Jerusalem to tell him that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a baby. Now, now Jerusalem That's where you expect stuff like this to happen, not Nazareth. Nazareth is nowhere, right? In in Star Wars, the first one, Luke Skywalker describes his home planet of Tatooine this way. He says, if there's a bright center to the universe, you are on the planet farthest from it, right? That's Nazareth. Nazareth is nowhere. There's one of, if you read the Gospel of John, there's a time when um, one of Jesus' followers named Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, we've we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth is just, it's just nowhere. And Mary was nobody. She was a young woman, probably a teenager. She was betrothed, legally engaged to be married to a carpenter named Joseph, who was a descendant of David, but that was really probably not much of a big deal at the time because it had been hundreds of years since Israel had a king. And so Mary, a working-class girl from a town of no importance, was understandably taken aback when an angel appeared to her and says, Greetings, O favored one. Favored how? Favored like this. The angel says she's going to have a baby boy. And the way Gabriel describes this little guy leaves no doubt of who he is. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Throne, reign, kingdom. He's the king. He's not a king. He's the king. 
the king the Jews had been waiting for. In Hebrew, they called him the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. Now this, this king part of Christmas, this is familiar to us, right? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. But this can be a hard part of Christmas for us to relate to. We, we can understand how in Mary's day, to Mary's people, this would be great news, right? The king is coming. But modern Western people, we don't necessarily want a king. Some of us are descended from people who fought a war to get rid of a king. Some of us, we, now don't get me wrong, right? We love our royals. We follow them on Instagram. We want good things for Harry and Meghan. But we don't necessarily want to go back to an absolute monarchy, to a ruler who has absolute power over the people and over the military and over the economy. We like democracy. We like checks and balances. We like separation of powers. A king is not so much. But our imaginations sometimes no better than our intellect. Because in our great stories, in our fairy tales, the oppressed villagers, the damsels in distress, they're never waiting for democracy to come riding in on a white horse. right? We want a hero, someone with courage and goodness and might, someone who will overthrow evil and establish peace. When this, I'm going to kick it into nerd gear a little bit. When Aragorn takes up his sword and leads one last desperate charge against the gates of Mordor, when when Aslan comes bounding into Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas and just by his presence brings spring. Those, those stories stir us so profoundly because deep down we know that what we really need is a king, the king, not a selfish king, hungry for power, exploiting his people, but a perfect king, a king who drives out evil, who defeats enemies, who enforces justice, who makes lasting peace. That's what we need. And that's what God's people were waiting for. They had had no true king, no king in the line of David, since they were taken into exile to Babylon in the 6th century BC. They had now, since then, they'd been under the, under the thumb of a, a succession of, of foreign powers, of great empires, the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. They'd now been under foreign occupation longer than the four centuries they were in slavery in Egypt. It was a long time, but God had promised them a king would come. Back when David was king, God made him a promise. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And God's people understood that to be a promise of an unbroken succession of kings in David's family. But then the line was broken by the exile, and hundreds of years passed, and the prophets began to tell of a king who would come, a king from David's family who would finally, once for all, rescue God's people from their enemies. And this is how Isaiah described him. It's the same passage that Ruloff read earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The prophets told the people that when the king comes, their enemies will no longer have their way with them. When the king comes, the poor will receive their rights. When the king comes, everyone's going to have enough to eat. You're going to have your own farms and vineyards. You're going to eat of the land and have rest. When the king comes, no father will go off to war and not return. No child will get sick and die. When the king comes, the world which has just been devastated by the effects of sin ever since Adam and Eve will be healed once and for all. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's the king they're waiting for. And the language that Gabriel uses in this passage to describe the baby makes clear that he's saying, this is that king. He says, he will be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. He'll sit on the throne of David. His kingdom will have no end. He's saying to Mary, your boy is the king you're waiting for. But Mary is still stuck back at the part where he said, you're going to have a son. Because Mary isn't married. She's betrothed. She's legally pledged to be married to Joseph, but they haven't come together. They haven't been married. There's no, humanly speaking, there's no way she could have a baby. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And what Gabriel says to her is stunning. He says, this baby's going to be a king, but more than a king, because he's not going to have a human father. God is going to be his father. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. <coughs> this is what Christians call the incarnation. God became man. The creator became part of his creation. The Most High became the most low, a baby born in poverty and obscurity and laid in a feeding trough. Gabriel's telling Mary that the king to come is truly God and truly man. He's not just a good king, he's the perfect king. He's not just going to reign for a long time, he's going to reign forever. And Gabriel tells her more than who is coming, he tells her why. Why is he coming? To save. Now, in the ordinary course of human life, God usually lets parents pick the names of their children, right? My wife and I are trying to, we're trying to name this baby girl who's coming in January, and sometimes I wish that God would just tell us what to name her, because we cannot arrive at a consensus. But so far, he has not lodged an opinion. Normally, he lets parents pick, but sometimes in Scripture, God himself instructs the parents what to name the child, and when he does it, it's always for a reason, right? Abraham, remember Abraham and Sarah were, were past the age when they could have kids, but God said to them, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. And the reason they, he wanted them to name him Isaac, Isaac means he laughs, and it was because when, Adam and, when Abraham and Sarah found out they're going to have a baby in old age, they laughed about it. It was laughable to them, and God said, I'm going to make sure you always remember that. Isaac. When God names a baby, it always has a meaning. Gabriel told Mary in verse 31 that she would name her son Jesus. And Jesus means the Lord saves. It means Savior. What did the angels say on the day, the day that they announced to the shepherds that Jesus had been born? Do you remember? We'll look at it in a few weeks. For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's the Savior. What has he come to save us from? Our enemies? Not yet. There's something more urgent than that that he has come to get done. And Zechariah sings about it on the day that John the Baptist, his son, is born, in, in just in verse 76 of the same chapter. And you, child, speaking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It's the same thing the angel said. Matthew tells us that the angel also comes to, to Joseph to tell him what's going on, and this is what he says. He says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The king is coming to save us from our sins. The word sin in the Bible, it means missing the mark, missing the target. It means that there's, there's a way of living that we were made for, a way we're supposed to live and that we're missing it. We're falling short of that life. It's the life, and, and much of the Bible describes what this life is supposed to be like. It's a life marked by continual praise and gratitude and love for God. It's a life of unceasing worship. It's a life in which nothing in our lives, not our work, not our money, not even our kids, captures our heart and our imagination more than God. And our love for God in this life is so great that it extends to everyone made in his image. That in every interaction we have with a person, we're thinking more about what would make them happy, what would be for their ultimate good, than we're thinking about ourselves. And that goes for, for whether it's our child or our parent, our spouse or our ex-spouse, our managing director or the panhandler in the parking lot. Whether they share our beliefs or not, we're to treat every person made in the image of God as if they're more important than we are. That's the target. The, the life we're to aim at is loving God with all our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And you have never hit it. Ever. And I haven't either. We've all missed the mark. We're all corrupted with sin. It's this disease of the heart that causes us to put ourselves at the center of our lives. We obey God when it's convenient and when it's maybe what it's, when it's what we wanted to do anyway. We'll love other people when it's easy, when there's something in it for us, when we're going to get seen doing it. We, everything is about us. All of us do it. It's why we enjoy it when bad stuff happens to people we don't like. It's why gossip feels so good. It's why we... We keep so much more of our money than we need. It's why we hurt people we love when they begin to ask more of us than we want to give. And God hates it. He hates sin. He's perfectly holy, perfectly loving, and sin revolts him. Now, I'm going to make a generalization here, and I hope you'll forgive me, but do you know the way your wife reacts when she finds a spider in the bathroom? Okay, do you... Can you imagine that, that reaction, right? Does, that, um, generalization, but, but if when your wife comes, does she come and say to you, hey, I just, there's a big spider in the bathroom, and I know that spiders are helpful for controlling the other pests in our home, and I, but I've weighed the pros and cons, and I, I think on balance, I'd just like you to remove it. No, right? You hear this, ah, <laughs> from the other room, and there's, can you come kill this thing, please? Right? That's revulsion. It's this deep-seated, instinctive, complete rejection. Get it away from me, right? That's how, 
That's, sorry for the generalization. God finds sin infinitely more revolting than you find spiders. Now, I know that that illustration breaks down. God never freaks out. He never overreacts. But his holy nature fundamentally and completely rejects sin. He, he wants nothing to do with it. The Bible says that his eyes are too pure even to look at it. And this passage, this passage describes God two times as the most high. The most high. Why, why does the Bible speak of God's greatness in terms of height? Right? In, in Isaiah, when Isaiah had that vision of the Lord in the temple, what does he say? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Why does the Bible describe God that way? to show how far away from us he is. He's the most high. He's perfectly holy. He's way up there, and we're way down here. He's perfect, and we're corrupted and defiled. And God's holiness means our sin has to be punished. It's not no big deal to him. He can't just overlook it. Kings who overlook law-breaking aren't good kings. He has to punish sin, and sin is so awful that the appropriate punishment for it is death. Not just physical death, but eternal spiritual destruction. That's why we need to be saved from our sins, and that's why Jesus came. Because what we need to be done, what what needs to be done for our salvation, what needs to be done for our forgiveness, only he can do. Sin must be punished. And so the only way for us to go free is for someone else to take our place. And that's why Jesus came. Because he's truly human, he can bear the guilt of men. And because he's truly God, he can bear the guilt of many. Jesus was born to die. He was laid in a manger so he could be hung on a cross. Don't tell me that you don't need what he came to provide. Don't tell me that you don't need forgiveness. You can try to deaden your conscience by ignoring it. You can distract yourself with busyness or medicate yourself with alcohol, but you can never make yourself not guilty. We're all guilty. All of us. But we can be forgiven completely. We can be innocent in God's sight. God's Son gave his life to save us from our sins. God didn't call to us from heaven and say, I'm up here, just try a little harder, just get yourself clean and then you can come. The Most High came low. He was born into the world for us. He came to us. He lived the life we couldn't and died the death we deserved. God loves you. He loves you What more could he do to show it than giving the life of his son? That's what Christmas means. Christmas is fundamentally a message. It's good news of great joy, but it also calls for a response. What is it? Finally, how should we respond to his coming? Submissive faith. Now, the call Gabriel gave to Mary was going to cost her dearly. Now, don't get me wrong, it was amazing news to be told you're going to be the mother of the king, the mother of God's own son. That's amazing, but it's going to cost Mary something because the flip side of that is that she's going to be an unwed mother. And she would know immediately what that would cost her in her community, from her family, from her fiancé, 
She doesn't know at this point that God's going to send an angel to tell Joseph what's going on. She just knows that she's going she's to turn up pregnant before she's married. She knows that this, what God's calling her to do, it could cost her everything. It could cost her the whole future she had planned out. And what does she say to the angel? Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She submits completely, and the reason she submits is faith. Now, remember I told you before that there, there are two angelic visits in Luke chapter 1, and, and Luke purposely contrasts these two people. So the angel comes to Zechariah in the temple and says, your, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. She's going to have a son named John in your old age. And, and Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? What's the proof I'm old, Elizabeth's old. How can I know for sure that you're telling me the truth? And this is what Gabriel says to him. He said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. But Mary is different. Mary says, okay. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel, in the course of the, the passage we read, told her, your relative Elizabeth, she's six months pregnant, and she was called barren, so you can, you can see that I'm telling you the truth. And so Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, and what Elizabeth says to Mary in verse 45 is, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary heard the good news, and she didn't say, how can I know this? What's the proof? She believed and her faith wasn't just intellectual acceptance. She didn't just think that the angel's words were true. She submitted herself to them. She said, let it be to me as you have said. She knew what it would cost her. But she said, in effect, you are God and I'm your servant. And being used by you is a greater treasure to me than having an easy life. So let it be to me according to your word. She's an amazing model for us. This, what she does here, this is what Christmas calls for. God gave everything for us. The eternal Son of God left the glory and peace of heaven to die on a cross. He took on infancy, poverty, misunderstanding, rejection, and death. Every suffering of Jesus' life was a suffering he chose out of love for us to save us from our sins. And the only reasonable response to that love is to is submissive faith it's to say i'm the lord's servant let it be to me according to your word god you say that the way to forgiveness the way to salvation is trusting in the death death and resurrection of jesus so let it be to me according to your word you say that real life is found in giving up my own desires and plans and following you let it be so you say that in this world I'll have trouble, but that in you I'll have peace. Let it be so. Let it all be so. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you done that? Have you come to God for forgiveness, the forgiveness he bought with the death of his son? And have you said to him, I'm your servant. Your will be done. Christmas is the greatest gift, but it does you no good unless you unwrap it. But if you come to God in submissive faith, Oh my. You'll be able to face your past without feeling condemned because you know that all of your sins 
are forgiven and removed from you. You'll be able to face the present with a restful heart because you know that no matter what's going on in your life, God isn't far off anymore. He's not separated from you. He's with you. He's near. And you'll be able to face the future with hope because you know that the king who came once to save us from sin will come again to make the world as it always should have been. Can you trust a king who died for you? Let's pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came not to condemn us, not to trample us, but to become one of us, to rescue us, to raise us up with you. You came to save. You came to save me from my sins. You came to save your church from our sins. Your love is so far beyond what we can imagine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to live rightly in relationship to you, that having purchased us with your blood, that we would give ourselves entirely to you and that you would use us for the glory of your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.